The first thing I thought of was chattering listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And we have a great episode here. It's a special one for you Umphreys McGee fans. There's so much going on in the Umphreys world, so we wanted to update you on that stuff. Right off the top, real quick, Rick Campana from Columbia, South Carolina is the one who won our contest where you had to identify the snippets of songs. Way to listen, way to be a careful listener. He chose, he won tickets to, among other things, tickets to a show that I might be at. So Rick, I may come over and say hi to you. You're warned. And, uh, well, let's just jump in quick. Thanks to our sponsors. First off, Polay Clark. I love Polay Clark. You know, the tax season has just passed. Folks, if you're reevaluating, if you're not satisfied, or if you're doing it yourself and you're starting to feel overwhelmed and you want someone who understands the entertainment business and who cares, go to Polay Clark, PolayClark.com. These are great people. P-O-L-A-Y-C-L-A-R-K dot C-O-M. Polay Clark. Thank you, folks. Osiris. Yes, the Osiris Podcast Network. And Seth, we have a new sponsor. That's right, Nugs.net, the destination for live music on demand. If you haven't been on Nugs.net yet, what's wrong with you? I sure have. They have a growing collection of over 15,000 full-length concert recordings from bands like well, let's see. Your favorite, Dead & Company. You've got My, My Morning Jack. <laughs> well, it's kind of your favorite. Green hey, Sky Bluegrass. Dispatch just joined. Dispatch. And, and think about something like Dispatch. It's not just their current live music. They have a catalog of stuff from the past as well. You can listen to the show from last night or, like I said, from 40 years ago. Hang on. Bruce Springsteen, Pearl Jam. Oh, I was listening to Pearl Jam today, actually. But this is a key thing. Those are two artists with fan bases that were clamoring for something like this for years. Right, right. And Nugs.net is the 
company or I guess website, whatever, they made it happen. Well, that's the thing. It's available on your desktop, sure, but it's also on your phones and, and your Sonos and all this sort of stuff. So uh, it's it's so simple and easy to use. You can go to nugs.net. There's the, the folks that work there, they're all live music fanatics, just like you, Rob. And myself, for that matter. Well, I don't so, think they listen to cassettes, so they're not exactly like me. Well, they're like me because they like discounts, and we're offering you, our listeners, a discount for new subscribers, a 35% discount nice. on their annual subscription. All you got to do is go to nugs.net slash inside out. Again, that's nugs.net slash inside out and sign up today. If you already have a subscription, give the gift of live music to a friend, a loved one. Father's Day is coming. Give it to your father. Again, nugs.net slash inside out. One final point. For 35% off an annual subscription, Rob. This actually came up in the dispatch interview. Mm-hmm. The significance of Nugs.net, you know, I make fun of Brad because of his, he has this weekly live stash show, Brad Serling, who started Nugs.net, and I don't always agree with his choices. Sometimes they're absurd. But Brad Serling has found a way to get the music to the fans and make sure that the money for the music gets to the musicians who create it. This is something that Keeping is quality too. such a valuable part of our scene. And yes, the recordings are fantastic. So, yes, this is something. If you're really a fan of this music, this is the kind of thing you should support. Thank you, Seth. You're welcome. Well, so let's just jump right into this interview, Rob. Uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, fill in the listeners? Well, we'll be real quick because it's a lengthy interview and we cover everything pretty well. But this is Kevin Browning, who is the initial sound man, and he's been a friend of Humphreys McGee since the start. He actually had his hand in management even before he left uh, the front of house sound. He helps with their studio work. He ha- now helps with their marketing, comes up with all these different ideas because the band is getting older and they have families and they want to be able to stay on the road but play less shows. This is a loaded interview. He really gives a lot of details into the uh, well into the band and, and into the processes they've made with this new album, etc. So uh, but, sit back. But I want to make that point clear. Go ahead. Longevity. You want your band around for a long time, people. Long time. Someone like Kevin Browning is a key part of why Humphreys McGee is going to be able to be around for a long time. Because they, it, it, he, well, he thought things. I mean, just look at the video stuff. I mean, he was thinking things uh, through way. He was seeing stuff down the absolutely. road, and and that's the thing. Even with this, even with the recording, the way they they first mastered uh, the, and he'll talk about this in the interview, but. One, what my takeaway though is the way he mastered some of this stuff. He put it aside, and they knew like they would come back to stuff eventually. Even if they don't, it was it was all organized so that they could, and that's really an important thing. And the hatred of him spawns great threads on the board. So here, without further delay, our friend, we are proud to say, our friend and one of the great minds behind the great Humphreys McGee, Kevin Browning. We have on the phone a longtime associate. Of Humphreys McGee, he's been a sound man. He has supported them from the start, along with Vince Uinski. Uh, he co-manages now with Vince, and he brought us Chris Mitchell and uh, guided him along. A sound caresser, a sound wizard, and also the only man in the jam world who reminds me of Brad Marchand, Kevin Browning. Mm. Welcome. Welcome, uh, welcome. Uh, thank you. Thank you. That's a very nice introduction. Um Brad Marchand, huh? High praise. Also, you forgot to mention that he was a uh, one of the shortest guests we've ever had on the show. Yes, you came in very, very briefly. Do you <laughs> do you remember the yeah, question? That, I believe that was um, I believe that was an unscripted appearance uh, while you guys were chatting with Mr. Coffin at the Tabernacle. I don't right. actually recall what you asked me. No, you asked him about. No, I, I asked Jeff a question. 
Yeah. I love how yeah, you... Yes, apparently I do remember. <laughs> I love how we knew uh, how that NXS thing was coming, but I didn't know the Miles thing was coming. That knocked me over at New Year's. But anyway, let's, get, let's move on. Big news from the Umphreys camp today. Day nurse and night nurse. Cannabinoids, cannabis coming from Umphreys McGee. Kevin... What, when was the beginning of this liaison between, uh, between you and MedFarm? Um, well, first off, I'd just like to say that um, it's a big day for my mom. You know, I know she's been waiting um, nearly 20, 25 years for her son to uh, be selling marijuana uh, <laughs> above the law. Congratulations. So that's, that's a big day. Hi, Mom. So, um, so the partnership with MedFarm um, has spurred out a relationship we've had with a uh, an ex-Chicagoan, longtime Umphreys fan, and uh, cannabis giant, Tim Matheson, uh, who works at MedFarm Holdings, and they have a few brands under their umbrella there. And he approached us a while ago, conversation, and to be honest, it was uh, we've had four or five at least, and never felt like it was a good fit for a number of reasons. And this was the first one that we felt like the um, the combination of everything being in-house, the level of professionalism, the quality of the grow operation all the way down to the distribution felt like a good fit for us uh, at a time that finally um, feels like We've wised up to sensical policy in this country, so it was uh, it was a combination of all those things, I suppose. They custom formulated for you. They grow the the strain in house, and uh, they use something called evaporative distillation to enhance the quality, right? Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm not a scientist. I do play one on the internet. Absolutely. But I've seen. It. I will um, from my. Um, from my growing yet limited um, knowledge of said uh, technique, my understanding is that the evaporation is basically a method to purify the cannabinoids away from um, the crude extract, so the parts you don't want. And the separation, there's a bunch of like, it depends upon the different boiling points of the compounds and blah, blah, blah. But under the uh, watchful eyes of a trained chemist makes a significant impact in the overall quality um, of the product. It sounds to me like it's trustworthy. I think that's one of the things about the current state of these uh, Absolutely. these pens and whatnot. You yes. don't really know what you're getting unless you know what you're getting. And it's not. And uh, if you're putting your name on it, I can guarantee that it's good. I mean, I would. I well, would. That, I I appreciate that you uh, you know that you trust that we wouldn't lend our name to. Um, poop vaping exactly um but you're you're 100 percent right and it's part of the reason why we've said no a bunch of times uh, up to this point because the quality control and it's just you know it's a it's an interesting space right we're still at a we're interesting crossroads with uh, cannabis as a whole and um you know our it's interesting in that while it's still legal in a bunch of places. I feel like our fan base, um, there's sort of an obvious connection there, and it's not a huge leap to make the assumption that um, a decent chunk of our fan base would be interested in 
in a partnership like this. Um, but they're also, uh, much like music connoisseurs, I think a lot of them have pretty good palates as it relates to, uh, to the devil's lettuce. So they'll appreciate so, something like the reintroducing of the terpenes thing that they're doing with this stuff. They'll appreciate the level right, of benefit. So that, yeah, that's basically just putting flavor back in. When you do, when you extract the uh, distillate, you're essentially extracting all the flavor as well to get the highest yield. But um, when Medfarm does this, they preserve and extract those terpenes and they put them back into the finished product so that it tastes good. And it also gives you the ability to kind of fine-tune the flavor profile of it, um, which, um, you know, if you... Uh, we think between the two options, there's a little something here for everybody. Uh, I, I sense a blind taste test coming. Oh, that'd be great. I'll, I'm, I'm, I'd like to volunteer yeah. for that. Um, but uh, there's other ways that uh, the fan base is in mind with this product. Uh, it's water printed with the Umphrey's uh, name written and then Day or Night Nurse written on it. Day Nurse is, of course, the, uh, the sativa. Night Nurse is the indica. There's a magna- yeah, magnetic... A bit- Go ahead. Uh, yeah, one's a little bit more of a... Uh- you know, of an upper energetic go-getter. The other one's a little bit more of a, um, a Rob relaxing, mellowing effect. I'm actually sativa guy. So, or, or so they tell me, you know. I'm, I'm just reading here off the uh, off the sheet. Right. So. Uh, <laughs> there's also a magnetic cap, so it makes it easy to use if you're at a show or a festival or you're just traveling. A lot of these people travel. Uh, there's a battery attached, a long-life battery, because you know how it sucks. Like, they start embarking on improv during WAPI, and it's like, oh, battery's dead. You don't want that. You, nobody wants that. So they have clearly, a Clearly. That actually is one the, of my uh, – go ahead. I, the, the magnetic cap, actually, I didn't realize how much I – um, would like that until I started butting around with it. It's actually a really cool feature that I was like, oh yeah, sure, magnetic top, and then I'm, uh, you know, it's the little stuff for me, Rob. It's the little stuff. But the cap straight. The um, the there's also a lot of you know as it relates to quality. There's also a lot of um, frankly inferior, cheap made uh, all-in-one disposable units like this. And I feel really confident that the overall experience people are going to have with this is going to be uh, highly favorable. Highly. And I'm serious about the battery thing. That is one of my main, the main source of reticence for me. That's that's why you don't use those. That's right. why you I stick don't want with it. flour and, and edibles because with edibles, you can take 20 edibles. Oh, this God, this guy edibles. eats more edibles than... He- well, no, oh, I have to have a, him he's first. He's a beast. He's a beast. You don't understand. I have to have him first. I mean, one 10 milligram is plenty for me, and Rob will eat like five of them. Like, he thinks they're freaking gummy bears. He forgets they're actually yeah, edibles. But I don't get shit-faced at shows. That's just that's Is this podcast playing back at the right speed? <laughs> <laughs> hey, we, we should I, point I out. Can't. I can't handle that shit. But be, I, I will, buried I, our lead, sort well, of. Well, well, well I, I think that it's interesting that this product came out on such a week i mean here's it it, marijuana is medical and right now i think people do need a prescription a little help because i mean you've got a lot of news this week with with waffle and and now and then and also this the there you go and then this and the big sellout of uh selling out iceland there's all the people that are shut out need to be medicated this is the perfect time to release this product and we'll talk about that later But there's one thing we haven't mentioned that's key. It is 100% pure. There's no additives whatsoever. It's pure, uncut CO2 nug run distillate oil. Say that backwards. 
I don't know. I just nug is in it. Yeah. That's enough for me. It had me at nug. Yeah, it's hard enough to say it forwards, but uh, <laughs> no, you're uh, you're gonna you're gonna like it. You know, it's uh, it pure is uh, an adequate descriptor. Sativa is my only well, you know, address. You'll have to do a. You can do a little tweener uh, tasting notes episode at some point. We'll get you a little, uh, we'll get you a little product, and we'll do some shameless self promotion. We will do that. We'll Wait, have to. I, think it, it, I might even get me to smoke. That's what we're doing right now. We'll have to do it in a legal state, of course. <laughs> uh, implied. You know, and we joke around a lot about this, but really, this stuff can be helpful. Good for nausea. It can stimulate appetite. That's helpful for older folks and creativity and appetites for creativity. It can help with pain, stress, and it has less side effects than others overpriced prescription drugs and you know what it actually makes music sound better so let's move on 20 years ago Humphreys McGee released Anchor Drops a key 20 years ago yeah and it's pivotal it's at a pivotal time they had found their drummer they had finally gotten Jake to move to Chicago so they all lived in Chicago and it was the beginning of their relationship with a uh, longtime uh, studio associate manny sanchez is this all correct kevin um other than unless it's 2024 i'm pretty sure it's the 15th oh, right, 15. but <laughs> so, <laughs> did we, uh, apparently did, he already got the sample you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're not gonna run this for five yeah. years i didn't mean to <laughs> uh, okay well i'm glad you're uh you're stocking up on episodes uh otherwise that's all uh that's all accurate information i reckon uh, it was a, yeah, it was a, it was a formative, um, incredibly fun and exciting time, um, in the world of Humphreys McGee. There was a, um, you know, there's a couple of years as everybody graduated from Notre Dame and slowly trickled to Chicago, myself being the, uh, um, the very last to do so. And then we kind of thought, oh, we'll, we'll have fun for a year or two in Chicago and then it won't work and we'll all get real jobs and that'll be that. And it was around this point that we started to feel like something was uh, evolving and that may not be the path that we were on. And uh, when our original drummer, Mike Miro, left the van, we were uncertain of the future and staring what, at indecision. What it may hold. Yes, the, uh, the opening line to track one. What do you know? Um, so we, we've. We found um, the man, the myth, Chris Myers. Which, uh, when we when we auditioned, or we we sent out a uh, a request for resumes, and his literally was the first one we opened. Which I remember sitting in Vince's apartment with Andy, and we had a big box of like Manila envelopes and stuff, and people were mailing in. Um, you know, this is like early 2000s. So people were mailing in like VHS tapes and cassettes and CDs. And like we're going through and his package was the first one. And Andy pulled out this great like 8x10 um, like Sears headshot of Chris. And he looked at it and he was like, yeah, probably never going to hire this guy. <laughs> and threw it <laughs> off the side. <laughs> and then of course... And then, of course, we listened, and we were like, whoa, this is going to be amazing. Like, this dude's amazing. And then package number two was not as stimulating as package number one, we'll say. Um, so, Isn't that often the case? Time that we're going. Uh, it's funny. <laughs> I, see, I see what you did there. Um, 
so this was the first time going into the studio with Chris, and it felt like a it felt like a big deal. It was a really exciting time. We, um, you know, you're young, you're energetic, you're hungry. You feel like the whole thing's in front of you, and you don't really have any um, you don't really have a, a rules you got to follow. So we ended up um, finding this space through our, one of our our first lawyer. And he had another lawyer friend who had a vacant studio above his lawyer's office here in Chicago. And we went and checked it out. And it was like an old control room and a big live room. And we're like, this place, is, this is great. Like, it's totally a blank slate. We can come in and do whatever we want. And um, it's soundproof. So we can, you know, we can be here all day and night and not, not bother any lawyers. And, um, of course, the story is well known but we promptly um set up and when we plugged in the guitar and we figured out why it was an abandoned studio because um the the whole building had this basically there's a transformer on the end of the block and it had this buzzing um noise that basically prohibited us from recording much of any guitar there we recorded acoustic guitars there but we did do drums bass um some of the keys some of the perk um so we, we did a lot of it there, but we ended up doing a bunch of the electric guitar stuff at a couple other studios um, over the course of the, the next year as we were as we were tracking this. But um, you know, it was it was the first. Um, I mean, at this point, I had engineered a couple of our uh, records and was starting to feel like I knew what the hell I was doing in some way, shape, or form. And Chris is such a technical. And um, he has such a good ear on the way that he wants his, you know, he knows what he wants his kid to sound like. So it was a good exercise for me um, in that he pushed me to to be a lot better at my craft. Um, I mean, it, it, all six of them do, but this was, the, you know, the first time with Chris and the first time. And drums are sort of notoriously the most difficult um, instrument to record. If you get a great drum sound, the rest is kind of gravy. So that was a uh, that was a fun challenge. Um, <clears throat> once Chris was on board, there. Well, speaking of drums, could you explain the difference? You, you guys released a remastered version and a remixed version, and um, could you explain also why? Speaking of drums, why they seem to me to be uh, more clear on the remix version. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. So. Here's the, in essence, the the remastered version is us maintaining the original the original album as you know it. Um, basically, we took the final two track, um, which is what you press, you know, what you master and you press CDs and um, from. We took that two track and just remastered it as it stands. So basically, it's a very faithful. Um, it's a very faithful recreation to the original. Now the remix, you can get, um, you can get your hands a little dirtier because it allowed us to go back to the original, um, multi-track recordings where instead of that two track that you're just touching up, putting a new coat of paint on, you actually are down at the granular level by instrument, by microphone. You have the ability to change the sonics of just the kick drum, the top of the snare drum, the bottom of the snare drum. Um, this, you know, so forth and so on. And, you know, the, the way that when, um, the, when Manny and I first talked about this and 
get to um, the backstory on Manny here in just a sec. But when we first started talking about this, it was we love the original record. We knew the original felt good because it still does um, 15 years later. But we wanted to, we sort of wanted to approach it of how would we do it differently today if we sort of knew what we knew then now and see how it goes. And that's not something that you often sort of get to do. Now, um, Manny Sanchez did the, the, I recorded the original. Um, the two of us mixed the original version and then Manny mixed the, uh, the remix version entirely himself from our, from my original um, recording. So the backstory on, on Manny is, and this is the first project that, that Manny um, had ever worked with the band. The in two thousand three, we were uh, I was at the Park West seeing a show, and our production manager, and monitor engineer Bob Stone, um, knew Manny and was like, "You should, you should meet Kevin." And so the two of us struck up a conversation there, and he basically said, "Hey, I know you guys are working on a record. You should come to Gravity Studios in Chicago, where I work, and and mix it." And I was like, "Yeah, you know that's a." That's an appealing option. I, so we sort of exchanged info, and that was that was how Manny um, came into the fold. And that was, you know, he's worked on pretty much every studio project since um, the first half of those together. And then as I transitioned away from the the studio role and the sort of some of the day to day on the um, that piece of the creative side, Manny still. Um, still maintain the relationship with us um, all these years later. So mm -hmm. um, and just to, just to kind of wrap up the remix versus remaster, um, you know, Manny basically the, the goal was not to replace um, one version or try to one up the original version, right? They're both yearbook photos. They're both snapshots in time. And that's in regards to both the experience and the technology that was available um, to us, which it's funny because we originally took, um, we originally took a bunch of the digital recording and we, and we looked for ways to implement analog technology to sort of warm up the original. Um, we, there was, you know, there was two inch tape. We transferred all the digital stuff to two inch tape um, at gravity um, to give it some of that analog grit and try to get some of that compression out of it. And, um, and now 15 years later, it's like we, we took, um, try to keep the best parts of that original process, but incorporate all the new tools that are still, still available or that are now available to us that, um, you know, that weren't originally there. So that allowed me to kind of go in and do some things that, that, we remembered sitting at the console 15 years ago, trying to figure out how do we get this, you know, how do we get this to sound like this? And some of the th those things we figured out, some of them we never did. And it allowed Manny to go back in and, and sort of realize some of that original vision. Uh, you commented on the drums, which I think is, is, dra is the most drastic difference, even for the lay ear. Um, to me, it sounds like you take a, you're taking a, a wet sock off the original recording. You get all this vibrance, <laughs> You get all this clarity and depth and the fidelity on the high end. And uh, for me, I love listening to the to Manny's new mix because when I listen to my original, I can't help but 
every 10 seconds, I'm like, ooh, I cringe at this or I cringe at that just because I'm like, ah, I wish I would have done this or I wish we could have done this differently or that's the nature of the creative product, right? right so yeah. it's been really fun for me to sit back and listen to these these remixes because I feel like this is this is how I heard a lot of it originally that we couldn't, you know, that we didn't quite execute that way. Where is Gravity? Um, Gravity was in Wicker Park. Um, I don't think it's still there anymore, actually. Or I don't think it's still Gravity anymore. Which, um, so it lost Gravity, huh? Yeah. yeah, but see see the opening conversation. All, all, uh, all things revert back to the nurses. <laughs> um, but a very cool studio. Um, and we, uh, it was the beginning of a, a long and wonderful friendship, as they say. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of ambient sounds on the record. Can you talk about capturing some of those? And did you tweak them at all to uh, apply them to the ultimate recording? Or? Um, yeah, so this is a really fun, this is a really fun part for me. As I mentioned, the Chicago piece of it, like, this is the first record that really had a sense of place for us. And Chicago is our relative new home. And as we're settling in and we're traveling a lot, coming home to Chicago and being there had a, had a, a profound impact on like how we were growing up and how we were creating and the, the, you know, the things that we were exposed to. And we wanted to pay homage to that, or at least make that, you know, a, a reference point on the record because it did influence a lot of things. So, um, I, I was in, I was, um, I, I've always loved sort of ambient field recordings of, um, whether it's, you know, whether it was, um, recording music is awesome, but I think it's really fun to go out and take a recorder and listen to the, just sort of the general sounds around you. And so there's a lot of ambient sounds of the city of Chicago, both the urban side of it as well as the, the nature side of it uh, that are sprinkled throughout the record. And some of them are more obvious than others. Some of them are a little um, more cryptic or hidden. But you hear, you know, you hear everything from uh, in the kitchen or right before and the anchor drops going into, into the kitchen. You hear the Chicago L and it's a recording of the uh, getting off at the L stop at there's actually a station called Chicago on the Brown Line. Um, in the middle of kitchen, you hear the swoosh of that L going by from left to right. Um, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Right. It's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, you get you know, and those are kind of sprinkled throughout the record because it felt like a it felt like a way to tie um, well, tie it together in a bit. Um, well, the band not did- all of them are. The band decided on Chicago. This is your way of pulling the audience with them. Yeah. Um, And we had a huge, you know, we had a lot of support here. We had a really, um, a bunch of, this is like sort of home base for the early rabid fans. And um, a lot of whom were our our friends. And um, I was saying that the, um, not all of them are authentic Chicago sounds, if, uh, if you will, the, the anchor that you hear dropping at the end of Anchor Drops is actually a gallon of orange juice being dropped into my bathtub in my <laughs> first apartment, the first apartment that I ever lived in in the city. You were preparing it for mimosas, I'm sure. <laughs> Something like that. Um, but all that stuff was captured. Um, it was either 
uh, an old Tascam DAP1 DAT player that I had, and I had a binaural head, which is basically like a 360 microphone that allowed you to get a, hence sort of the spatial effect of feeling like something can not just be left channel or right channel, but it can actually be behind you or above you. Or so a lot of the a lot of these um, um, a lot of these were captured with that, and then I also just had the my little Sony Handycam that a lot of the footage over the years from things like Real to Real and some of the archive stuff um, that I just took that out when I wanted to be a little bit more discreet about my recording as opposed to lugging around a human-sized head in a dad player. <laughs> and uh, to clear up some Humphrey's urban myths, um, how many songs were worked on that weren't released, and did you consider releasing B-sides or alternate takes as part of this uh, anniversary celebration, or maybe even Bayless Jake? I've been pining away for a Bayless Jake release since I became a fan. You know, of, from called from their Christmas shows. Did you consider releasing any of that kind of stuff? I feel like that was more just like a plug for what you wanted to release, as opposed to like well, a lot of the fans the anchor drops. A lot of the fans too, though. You know that. No, um, so. The short answer is yes. As I started plumbing the archives for um, various content to figure out what we were going to do with the with the Redux release, it dawned on me that um, you know it's an, obviously an easy place to do to do B sides or demos or unfinished things. And when I went back and I was looking at the early track sheets, and um, there was very little left on the cutting room floor. We sort of focused the in on the songs that we actually recorded. Um, Push the Pig, I think, was the only track that was recorded but never finished. And we, we never mixed it. We didn't even... Um, uh, which actually makes the, the only song that's been... Um, that was the second time it had been recorded and then left on the cutting room floor. We oh, also wow. recorded it down in Cincinnati when we did uh, Local Band That's Okay. But it just never felt like it had the um, the energy that it, it just didn't have the energy. The arrangement didn't feel quite right. And we never, we weren't quite sure where to put it. And it just, it just felt like we were square peg round holding it at the time. Um, so other than that, um, there wasn't a lot of, of leftover parts, I guess, if you will. Um, a quick side piece to the Jake and Brendan solo stuff. Um, the, I can't tell you when that's going to happen, but I can tell you with, um, near certainty that that will happen it's just a matter of when not if cool and a couple other side pieces you graciously gave me push the pig from gave us push the pig from anchor drop sessions that was heard at the beginning of the show has the band ever toyed with crooked one or number five in the studio ever um well just to note gave you a small piece of it um only because uh the rest shall not see the light of day. We're thankful for any. Um, We're thankful for any. And no, um, the cricket one and number five, neither were part of this session. And I don't believe they've ever been um, attempted in, in any session. Number five doesn't, isn't really a studio song, if you will. The, the, to pick a live, um, a live instrumental never made a whole lot of sense. To us, although I say that, but we've certainly done it a few times. But generally speaking, the goal is to trim the fat and try to create something um, different from the live show. And number five sort of feels like 
it's, it's best left there. Um, the crooked one has definitely been discussed. Um, I love that song. over a few sessions about about tracking it, and then um, you know, there's so many so many ingredients, so many things to bake. Um, not all of it comes to fruition. Gotcha. All right. Well, of course, Jefferson Waffle has been producing these absolutely well. You've been working with him as well. These fantastic videos. First of all, an introduction and overview of the record, and then uh, track by track, uh, video by video. We learn about the Lego songwriting process. We learn ab- about influences from everyone, from Al Miola to uh, Pat Metheny and John Coltrane. Uh, in the kitchen, really. Um, was impressive to me. I, I didn't know any of that stuff. You, you want to watch it in the kitchen video if you're a fan. But I, I'd like to talk about also uh, thir- we went Camp Bisco. By the time this is released, the 13 Days video will be out, and there's a story about you know, a song that always reminded me of Steely Dan. By the way, were you at Camp Bisco when the story in that video occurred? Uh, I most certainly was, uh, and I can testify to the um, to the shit show that it was. Um, so for those of you who um, haven't seen the episode or don't know the general premise. 13 Days is so titled because in 2002, we decided to take a two-week sober tour as a band um, and not drink for two weeks while we were out on the road. Uh, technically 13 days, hence the uh, the title. So there were two weeks of shows leading up to Camp Bisco, and Camp Bisco was the final um, the final date of the tour. And this was, this was before we had a, this is the first time we played Camp Bisco. We had met, um, we had met the guys from the Biscuits a time or two in like Martyrs in Chicago, but it wasn't a, the relationship was, was early in its formation and it wasn't the kind of, um, familial brotherhood that we have with them now. So we roll in and, we have been, you know, we haven't been drinking for two weeks. So instead of taking any risks about what the festival might have, we stop and get a keg um, <laughs> and plop it in the back of uh, my Suburban, which was the touring vehicle uh, of choice at the time. And once we got to the festival, it, um, it, uh, after our set and we had a celebratory cheers, it sort of devolved into a, um, a raucous, um, keg party complete with keg stands and um, all sorts of ballyhoo, really. But it was it was definitely uh, definitely one for the book. It's like letting Chicago Bears out of their alcohol deprivation cages. <laughs> That's what it looked like to everybody else, including the biscuits. I can tell you, like, who the hell are these guys? They brought their own keg and they're like having a frat party on our our lawn. Now, a couple other things uh, we've. Uh, We've matured a bit since then. Uh, not not a ton, but but a bit. Definitely a different scene backstage now than it used to be. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Tinkles, Miss Tinkles Overture has a lot of classical roots, but and one thing that isn't touched upon in that video, I've always felt, and Kevin Castles, noted Humphreys McGee historian, also heavy metal uh, aficionado, aficionado who co- who. Uh, Co-hosted the heavy metal episode of the Timeless Music Podcast with Slash, me. Slash, uh, person that's very tolerable of yeah. Rob Turner. Yes, he he uh, digs the Rob Turner, although he kind of blew me off in Nashville, but that's another story. Um, Iron Maiden is definitely in there, too, and he has a specific song that is referenced in that. Do, do you agree with that? I completely agree with that. Um, Jake is steeped in the whole Maiden catalog, to be sure, and his metal influences run um, run deep, and 
I think it's a I think it's a classic piece of Jake composition in that it it takes you know such seemingly um, juxtaposed genres as um, as he approaches it with a classical structure, but um, plays it with a metal edge, and it's such a cool example of like his ability to to mash something like that that when you hear it, it makes perfect sense, right? Like it feels it feels like, Oh, this, this completely works and belongs together. Um, but that's a, you know, it's easy to say with hindsight, it's, uh, it's another thing for to conceive and execute it. Um, like Jake did. Lost for words. Uh, Is that Iron Maiden song, by the way? Ah, uh, okay. I can't speak specifically to the tune. Uh, you'd have to ask Jake that, but, um, the two other, Tinkles notes there's a there's thunder at the end of it um which is half recorded during a chicago rain and thunderstorm and then the other half of it is another sample that i had recorded from some other place um man at the very end of this one um yeah going into uh going into uncommon you hear um a bailiff's flub and he's like why am i blowing this (laughs) which was from sort of the outtakes of trying to um you know, a seemingly very simple guitar part and him feeling like he just couldn't get it right. And we always like including stuff like that because we feel like it's a good, a good human angle into the recording process of how it really works. Like you, you know, you polish these things, but at the end of the day, they're filled with, they're littered with uh, accidents and happy mistakes. And, um, and we just thought it'd be funny to put that one in there. And more appropriate to this situation, it demonstrates something about him that stinks. Um, there you go alright let's just two I, I don't want to get into song meanings too much but two songs if you can give a little indication Wallet's Worth which I, I love that bass line um, and I, I yep. from talking to you I had the meaning slightly wrong it's it's about a friend of theirs from college or something right uh, it is um, that's great great basic bass line I agree with that entirely um, big opponent of that guy Ryan Stasek um, the the song is about a, a friend of ours from Notre Dame who, um, um, I guess you'd say was was a bit lost on his uh, on his ways and trying to figure out some things in his own life. And Tobias, the character name that I believe Brendan penned for him, not his real name, but um, sort of talking about the. Um, his quest to, um, you know, figure out where, where home was living day to day, couch to couch, never having enough money in his wallet. Um, could you be my only address? Meaning, um, you know, where do I settle down? And I actually don't like, I don't like trying to ascribe or pen meaning to any of any of these songs, particularly Brendan's lyrics, because, I think one of the the brilliant um, things about his his um, his penmanship, <laughs> which he has very nice penmanship, but his uh, his lyric writing is that he has the ability to be vague yet meaningful to a, such a large number of situations where everybody can hear it and connect with a different part of it, and whether or not it's exactly about what you think it's about is less important than your own ability to connect with it and relate to your own life. So. I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but this this is one that did have a, a real life character that it was that it was based on. 
Yeah, we used to have a hockey team here called the Atlanta Thrashers, and one of the most consistent players was Tobias Enstrom, so I used to sing the first line of that song at the hockey games. There's a little fun fact. Okay. Uh, and most, that wasn't his, like, uh, his walkout tune? <laughs> not, you know, I tried to, but I just didn't have enough pull in Atlanta yet. I could have made that happen now, but not back then. Um, okay. Now, now, this other one, we didn't talk about Malchais, but my, uh, our audience loves when I fall on my face, so I'm going to go ahead and ask. Is the guy in Malchais waking up, and slowly remember, waking up in, the, in the morning or afternoon and slowly remembering a relationship-ending fight? Well, to the huge disappointment of... Uh, all of your fans who love the schadenfreude of you falling. Um, I don't have any idea, hmm. to be perfectly honest with you. Hmm. Okay. I really don't know about that one. And before we move on, Wife Soup, I love the, the horns in it. I love the. I had forgotten what a great studio track it is because I listen so much to live. I don't go back and listen to the studio stuff, and that was it's one of my favorite Humphrey songs. Yeah, sure. I love the intro into it, and I love how the horns sound. And, um, and does Pequod have anything to do with Moby Dick? There's a there's a, sh- a vessel in Moby Dick named the Pequod. Uh, of this, I am. We'll, we'll work backwards on those. Um, of this, I am certainly aware. It is. Um, it is not only has something to do with it, but um, is named directly for it. I um, I was actually reading Moby Dick while when Jake wrote that song, and we were just chatting. And I was like, "What's this thing called?" He's like, "I don't know. It's just a. It's just this repetitive thing I'm working on." And I was like. I was like, it reminds me of um, of staring at a uh, at a never ending ocean, sort of a, um, a a whale call, if you will. And it 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 felt like a metaphorical fit to Moby Dick uh, at the time. And Pequod seemed like um, seemed better than uh, Captain Ahab at the time. So it's named uh, it's named for the boat, indeed. Um, now, wife soup. Um, yes, that one, um, especially being, um, damn near the last track of the record. Um, I, it had been a, quite some time since I had revisited it, um, until we, until we pulled this project off the shelf. Um, we've got, uh, the great Carl Benson, of course, lending his, uh, lending his horns on that. Um, but this one, uh, broad stroke meaning wise, which is, this is, fairly well known in the uh, police community is that this, this was Brendan um, basically seeing the Chris upon his entry into the band. Um, you know, it, it's all your circus now, sort of the reference to, uh, you know, do you know what you're getting yourself into? Uh, Chris at the time was coming from a, you know, he had a master's in jazz. He was coming from a, a totally different background as it relates to just scene. And he was walking into, um, you know, he's walking into this band of brothers, you, a bunch of bunch of dudes living in a van, spending way too much time with each other. And it's a challenging thing to walk into a, a effectively a family. And so this was sort of Brendan just taking a 30,000 foot view, looking at all that we were and what was going on and what we had and, and what Chris was getting into. Um, so that one, uh, that one had a, a lyrically, very lyrically relevant thought to, to all of us at the time. I've always liked the line, still our sleeves are weighted down. And I was looking at all things Umphreys, which, by the way, if you go to the Umphreys website and you go to all things, it has all the set lists, all the songs, all, most of the lyrics. Um, 
But it has it written out as weighted, W-A-I-T-E-D, instead of weighted, W-E-I-G-H-T-E-D. Is that is there any indication of that? Is that is that uh, revealing in any way? Um, I think it's revealing that we have a typo on the All Things oh. um, hmm. site. Yeah, so... Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to... Because um, if, if it does, it's it's so meta that it eludes even me. Um, um, <laughs> what, well, you're uber meta? Not a, <laughs> uber, uber meta. Um, Scott Marks, who... Um, Biz Archive on Twitter, I'm sure you're familiar with his... Uh, yes. Um, his excellent work at documenting uh, fish and Humphreys and... My Gordon uh, Man, especially my Gordon Man, because he's the only one doing it. Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, he helped. He helped with a bunch of lyrics, um, and I'll have to let him know that I think we have that one wrong, or it's Uber Meta. But he's a great man. Yes, very, very pro Scott Marks. He is indeed. Nice chap. Hey, there's a piano part at one point. has an old time, really, really old time feel, like almost from an old movie or something when Joel plays solo in Wife Soup. How did you get that sound? Do you remember? Um, Yeah, um, the piano breakdown, definitely. So that's actually a regular upright piano from Gravity, um, just with a bit of computer magic applied on the top of it. Um, It's, we basically put a low pass filter on the piano, which takes all of the high end out of it and just lets a very specific um, part of the bandwidth come through. So it gives it that like, uh, uh, like twenties talkies, black and white film soundtrack vibe. Um, because you have a very small part of the frequency perspective actually making its way through um making its way out. And then you also hear there's a little bit of uh, static over it, I think, which I took, um, I took an old like AM FM radio and tuned the dial in between two stations. So it's kind of searching and it's just white noise and layered that over the top to, uh, to complete the, the, the mood piece, if you will. Awesome. Well, we really do appreciate your time. I want to do yeah. just a few more things um, before we go on. We, we, we're at the point now where we're dying to have Vince Uinski on. Um, feels like these yes, days we, yes, hear, you should. we hear a lot about you. Um, the fans don't get to hear enough about what Vince has done and uh, continues to do for the band. Um, yeah, so Vince is great. Vince is awesome. Everybody who um, knows Vince loves Vince for good reason. Um, you know, he's, he's been around since day one, uh, as well, immediately taking on the, um, um, the management side of things from the beginning. Um, he was working a desk job at AT&T and was, uh, simultaneously running off a bunch of free copies in the copy room for us without, uh, AT&T being none the wiser. <laughs> eventually, uh, eventually he had to make a decision, but you should, uh, you should get him on the, uh, you should get him on for an episode. Absolutely, um, he, he will. He will uh, entertain and uh, rivet your fans with all sorts of fun facts and useful Humphreys information. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, we'll take uh, you up on that, and maybe we'll just do that in. Well, okay, Iceland. We'll do that in Iceland. That sounds like go. a plan. Yeah. No, uh, thanks for the invite. <laughs> um, nice, seg- nice segue. And Robbie Williams someday, too. Um, now, with the Waffle departure uh, that has been announced, Jefferson Waffles is moving on from being the lighting designer. You have a transition ahead of you, and I'm sure that's not, that's not a fun thing to, uh, to deal with. But 
Uh, well, no. My, my question is: How are you going to go through the envelopes on this one? Right. Yeah. <laughs> don't throw any. Don't don't have uh, Andy go through them. <laughs> yeah, you know, something tells me we're going to get a lot less VHS cassettes showing off uh, people's people's par can work. Um, yes, it will be, uh, it'll be a different process. Um, you know, just to the top, it's been a, it's been an awesome, um, decade with, with waffle. It's been a great run. I, um, you know, the beginning I was out, um, still mixing front of house, um, at the end of 2008, nine, 10, and the beginning of 2011. So we, uh, we were front of house mates for a long time there, and um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm happy for him, and I'm, I'm happy he won't have to to brave the rigors of the road forever. Um, that said, I I don't think that the, um, the our working capacity um, will be over um, by any stretch. You commented earlier on the you know on the Redux video that we've been doing. And, yeah. Um, he, they've been, you know, it's been super fun to lots of, most of the video projects that have come out of our camp. Um, Jeff and I do together. Jeff does, um, you know, his directing and his editing continues to get, um, continues to improve that. I, I love it. I used to feel like I used to send back all these notes and now my notes are, um, by the time it gets to me, I feel like it's already in in really good shape. So you're, uh, you won't, you know, I think, I think that even, um, in 2020 and beyond that, that, uh, we're likely still to do video projects together. So I don't think you'll, I don't think it's the last you've seen of Mr. Waffle. Uh, yeah, I get to see some of his video work he does for CID, uh, entertainment, which is a, a yeah. great company with a silly name, kind of like a great band with a silly name. But um, he yeah, really we are, we are familiar uh, with some, some great people over there. Dan Berkowitz, one of my one of my favorite humans on the planet. And he is just Waffle is just doing a great job of incorporating new elements and keeping things uh, looking fresh. He also said on the drop, which is uh, Osiris's weekly uh, podcast, kind of a uh, refreshing news. They tell yep. yeah, the news and whatnot. But go ahead. But Waffle himself said that his lining board and some of his approaches are at this point slightly outdated, and that the band could actually be served quite well with a new lining designer. Waffle said that himself. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think there's, you know, I think there's some validity to that. I think that, I, I think that the show that Waffle runs is incredible. I think it. I think he, what he does, I think he's as good as anybody, um, period. I think he has a very signature style and, um, I think that's become, you know, that's sort of his calling card in a way you look at the technology and the production that, um, that's out today versus just 10 years ago. And it's, it's mind blowing the size, the cost, the transportability of it. Um, so there's, you know, there's a bunch of things that are really cool looks that, just aren't have never been Jefferson's um, sort of go-to. So I, it's um, they're obviously big shoes to fill. Right. And it's going to be um, to me, I think that it's, it's, I look at it as a, as an opportunity to do something, to continue to evolve, to do something um, fresh and exciting and give people, um, give people a new look in, in some regards. I don't think you, you know, just like when I got off the road, like, and I hired Chris to do my job, I was like, Hey, you're not like, we're not hiring you to um, make it sound like me. Like 
we're hiring you to make it sound um, like you and sound sound better than what I did. Like, so don't feel like you're you're stuck in the you know you're under my thumb or whatever. And I think that it'll be similar in this to where it's like where where we go from here um, is not likely to be a clone of Jefferson Waffle. It's going to be something. Um, it's going to be something different. And I think that uh, anytime you change something as um, as as present and as um, you know, as as a significant part of the show, like that, people are gonna. It's gonna feel different, and it's gonna take. You know, I'm sure it'll take some time for uh, all of us on both sides to to get used to. Um, but you can't be afraid to. You can't be afraid to to evolve and grow and challenge yourself in new ways. True, but if I divorce myself from any relationships or friendships in the situation and look at this all as an Umphreys McGee fan, to me, the most difficult element of Waffle to replace is how he moves through the improvisation. That's the one thing that he does that I think is as good as even the best lighting designers. So what that makes tricky for you is how are you going to be able to know how someone moves along with the improvisation until they actually go in there and start doing it? Um, Yeah, I think there's a... I think there's this, there's a huge skill set you got to have out, right out of the gates, right? Whether it's an improvisational act or not. Um, so assuming you check all those boxes, you're right. It is a different, um, it's a different look in most shows and most LDs are effectively programming and running the same show every night. Um, that's obviously not the norm in the, um, the yam band community. Uh, given <laughs> given all the improv, um, but for lots of music, that's actually um, you know that's the case. So that all being said, I think it's a little bit of um, um, I think it's a little bit of instinct. I think you, I think we're going to have to uh, um, I think you're going to have to get a feel for um, uh, you know do they have a sense of um, you know, first off, do, do they get it? Do they get what we're doing? Um, because it's different. It's not, um, it, it, it's much more complex. The level of, you know, improvisation, given the complexity of Humphrey's music and how much waffle is, um, is counting in his head. You're going to have to have somebody who has a very strong musical background that it understands, um, that understands how to do that. So, um, I think, uh, I guess I'll, I'll end it with the, uh, um, the memorable line by Justice Stewart when he said, uh, talking about obscenity and the First Amendment and how he knew pornography when he saw it. And it was, well, I know it when I see it. Yeah. Howard Stern's favorite line. Oh, um, <laughs> no, I'm being I, sarcastic. Uh, I don't listen to as much Howard. <laughs> Uh, I'm not the only um fan who, when this news came out, the name mm. Luke Stratton popped in our heads. So I hope his um, name is in Luke, that hat. Luke's, Luke's a good dude. We're going to cast the net far and wide. Um, I like Luke a lot. He's a talented LD, talented programmer. Um, there are tons of uh, people that fit that description. So at this point, it's still, uh, you know, we're right at the front end of this. And so what's Reagan doing gonna, these days? Is he still around? Yeah, Reagan. Uh, that's a question I don't know the answer to. Well, he's a big um, he's a big listener of ours, so maybe he'll uh, send in his VHS. Incredible designer too. Excellent, excellent work. I really I really hope, if nothing else, that this at least um, gets us one VHS. 
submission. Yeah, it'll be from Rob Turner. <laughs> with like, with like a... <laughs> it's like, I don't want the job. I just want to get rid of this uh, videotape. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. uh, what, what's your uh, favorite? You're a fan and, and a manager. What's your favorite and least favorite? Excuse me. What's your favorite waffle memory as manager and favorite <laughs> waffle memory as fan? Yeah, the least favorite, too, if you want. You know, I, I usually handle those fine, though. Oh, yeah. Let's start with the least favorite. Um, hmm. Well, I think just as a fan, I think it's actually pretty, while it's not a single one, I think it's just a similar experience to um, what most people have, which is um, watching, you know, watching him paint on a canvas. Um, I, it's, you know, there's a ton of work that goes into um, putting the show on and, and our team and our crew i love the process of watching you know they work their asses off to create that canvas and give uh the band works their asses off to give a soundtrack and then waffle gets to um to paint on it and you know i have the first image that popped in my head when you said that was um a bunch of the fixtures turned um upstage on the back of the stage at red rocks nice with all the um, you know, with a bunch of those go-go's spinning and the open air. And it's like, this is, you know, that, those are those moments where I'm like, I'm incredibly fortunate to do what I do for a living. So, nice. um, as the manager, um, I don't know, we've had some good, uh, I guess, uh, I guess I would go with filming the, um, the fourth Gump videos for Umble. <laughs> Um, yeah, the one that we filmed, the one that we filmed at, at Wrigley Field was one of my favorite moments, which, um, I'm a diehard Cubs fan and love baseball. And so to doing that with Joel, who is, uh, also a lifelong diehard, um, Cubs fan and Waffles, obviously a big Sox fan. And like Red Sox, the, the three of us, the, the, yeah, yes, sorry. That, uh, also it's important um, to get that the in there. Three of us. The three of us unleashed um, in Wrigley to film for a few hours was like pinch myself. This is uh, <laughs> especially to film something as ridiculous as we were making. Um, that was really fun. So. You also have a knack for filming uh, walk off homers. Filming what? <laughs> walk off homers. Walk off homers. Oh, uh, I've had a good. Uh, I've had a good luck there. Yeah, I've had a good streak. Yeah, fans have mentioned as far as Waffle, the Electrical Storm in Indiana, and the Choir uh, at New Year's when you had the Choir. Those are things that the fans have mentioned. Uh, yeah, let's yeah. end that, that electrical that Electrical Storm um, it has a slightly different memory for me because I had one hand on the soundboard and one hand on my DSLR the whole time because I was determined to capture uh, a photograph of that lightning because it's some of the craziest lightning I've ever seen, let alone happening. Uh, right behind um, the stage that you're putting on the show. Luckily, right behind being just far enough away that we could actually continue the show. Mm-hmm. But that was a hell of a that was a hell of a night. And we end with Iceland. How long has this been in the works? Mm, we have had conversations about this for over three years. Vince and I. Um, with a a buddy of ours, another promoter who has, he brought the, um, the idea of, Hey, let's, you know, let's, let's take a look at this. And we had said, um, you know, we love the idea. Um, we've talked about something similar on our end. 
timing wasn't right, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that's how a lot of these things work. You start, um, you start the gumbo and you slowly simmer and eventually, um, you get a window and, and timing lines up and it becomes, um, the right thing at the right time and you, you pull the trigger on it. So we're, um, that's, it's awesome. You know, we, we say like, we said, oh, it's like a bucket list trip, um, for fans come join us. But like, we feel like that is much or more than anybody else. Like I'm, um, it's such a, such an amazing nook of the planet. And it's, it's awesome that we're going to be able to go and do that in, in the venue that is, uh, just out of this world. Cool. Um, I, I suspect, um, I suspect it'll be, we'll do a podcast, uh, after Iceland, we can mm-hmm. go through all the, um, all the Nordic Vikings that we come across while we're spelunking the yeah. countryside. How, how much advance have you done so far in, in terms of like really being able to home in on the back line and all those, uh, Maybe it's like, I mean, you're, you're just your lights alone. And then, I mean, all the, in all the different types of gear that you're not going to just travel with, you know, to get there. Um, or, or is it going to be more of a laid back, um, environment in terms of the, the equipment? Um, well, we're going to put on a kick-ass rock show. So we've been, we don't, um, something like this doesn't, um, doesn't get announced and happen without doing all the due diligence in advance. Even if you don't have every, every technical detail figured out, you know that you have, um, you know, you can, you can, you cross the T's and dot the I's, but, um, a lot of the heavy lifting, uh, you know, Vince and I do months before anybody hears about anything. And then once it's live, it's, um, the energy starts to shift to down the org chart and, into the crew and um uh, it's just sort of the nature of the um the way things work so iceland it's gonna rule well look uh, nice chat with you guys today yeah um yeah thanks for the time you know um Humphreys fans really appreciate how you and vince look after them and seth and i really appreciate how kind you've been to this show you and the particular and the band and um just uh let's keep it going let's onward and upward man uh, well, thank you. We appreciate um, you guys supporting the cause, and and you know, from the fan standpoint, I always say it, but like, I just do things that I like, that I'd want experiences I'd want to go experience as a music fan, and um, that's how the band has always seen it and still sees it. And I think that that's a lot of things that that our fans and us have um, our eye to eye on. Um, so it doesn't feel like a, it doesn't feel like a huge, um, a huge leap on a lot of these. It's, um, does this sound like a fun idea for, to get a group of friends together and and go do. And, uh, when the answer is yes, and the logistics work and we can, we can put it all together, then, uh, then off we go. Well, we will talk with you soon in the interim. If you could do me a favor and just try to help them get over their fear of nachos. Some songs just aren't meant to be dusted off. Oh, whatever. Jesus. Rearrange it. (laughs) We'll talk with you soon, my man. All right. Adios. Take care. All right. Good stuff, fellas. Take care.
That is Joel, the wrecking ball, Cummins. Mm-hmm. <laughs>